I'm Lavelle Landerson. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at Syracuse University, as well as an affiliate faculty member in the departments of women's and gender studies and African-American studies. And what I thought I would do is talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges I see happening currently in our current moment, especially around public discourse and the way in which uh, um, when which social issues get worked out in the public domain. Okay. Arundhati Roy, the marvelous author and thinker, recently told us that historically pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. And that the current pandemic is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. Roy spoke of the revealing nature of the pandemic how it has pulled back the covers and made manifest the structural infelicities that had heretofore been hidden, at least to some. What Roy was signaling is that we are in a moment of possibility, that we have an opportunity to reimagine and re-envision a world more equitable, more just than the one we inhabited and maintained before. Roy's article was published April 3rd of this year. On May 25th, a different event transpired that would spark its own global response. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man was apprehended by police on suspicion of buying cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. George was snatched from this world when Officer Derek Chauvin kneeled on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, while Chauvin's fellow officers stood by and observed. Just a few weeks earlier, a video surfaced of 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery being shot at point-blank range by Travis McMichael. And about a month or so earlier, on March 13th, 26-year-old Brianna Taylor was shot at least eight times as police in Louisville, Kentucky forced their way into her home, executing a no-knock warrant, and in turn, executing Taylor. Arbery's, and to a lesser extent, Taylor's killings sparked national attention, both uh, but more localized protest. Floyd's killing, however, has sparked a global multicultural response that has moved politicians to at least pay lip service to concerns about the state of policing. Given public fervor and global attention over policing, could this also be a moment of possibility? one that allows for the reimagining of how we as a society conceive of public safety and of black citizenship. There is a lot of pressure at the moment to do something, but how are people understanding the thing about which something must be done? At the moment, we are seeing a lot of symbolic gestures by companies and politicians, like releasing Black Lives Matter statements and removing public statues that honor Confederates and imperialists. Just this week, the White House released an executive order on safe policing for safe communities in which the main proposals are a ban on chokeholds, except in those situations where the use of deadly force is allowed by law, use of independent credentialing bodies approved by the Attorney General to assess state and local law enforcement practices and policies, the creation 
of a database to coordinate the sharing of information between and among federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial law enforcement agencies concerning excessive use of force. And lastly, the designating of mental health professionals as the primary responders for encounters with individuals who suffer from impaired mental health, homelessness, and addiction, and the training for officers to better deal with encounters with such individuals. The White House's response signals that it understands the situation as one of a few rogue cops and that the institution of policing is fundamentally sound. The diagnosis in short is that despite the horrific killings that have taken place, these are isolated incidents and not emblematic of any institutional failure. This more subdued diagnosis is in stark contrast to the opinions of those residing in heavily policed communities. In 1966, James Baldwin characterized the relationship of the police to black communities as that of an occupying force in occupied territory. He writes that the police are the hired enemies of the Negro population. They are present to keep the Negro in his place and to protect white business interests, and they have no other function. Angela Davis, the great philosopher and activist, expressed a similar sentiment, reflecting on her childhood growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. We knew that the role of the police was to protect white supremacy, she recounts. In the Policing Portals Project, Gwen Prowse, Vesla Weaver and Tracy Mears surveyed the experiences and perceptions of members of highly policed communities through the use of live streaming technology that allowed participants in different locations to interact directly with one another. The participants uh, were residents of highly policed areas in places like Baltimore, Los Angeles, Milwaukee, Chicago, Newark, and Brooklyn. The authors noted that Participants characterize police as contradictory everywhere when surveilling people's everyday activity and nowhere if called upon to respond to serious harm. They refer to this duality of the police as distorted responsiveness. As far as I can tell, the two broad perspectives I've just mentioned are representative of views held by many in the populace. Many Americans in predominantly white middle-class suburban neighborhoods and perhaps rural white neighborhoods tend to adopt a more minimalist view, that is, one that conceives of the policing institution as fundamentally sound. According to a Cato Institute national survey from 2016, 68% of white Americans had a favorable view of police. In contrast, only 40% of African-Americans held a favorable view of police. These findings clearly represent clashing perspectives, conflicting understandings of the state of the world. They represent what I call a hermeneutical impasse. Broadly speaking, a hermeneutical impasse refers to a break in understanding due to a gap in shared hermeneutical resources. Hermeneutical resources are essentially cognitive, affective, and express expressive tools we use to make sense of and communicate our experiences. In, in my paper, Hermeneutical Impasses, 
I described four basic types. Type one impasses have as their source the lack of shared linguistic items. For instance, interlocutors who do not share a common language. Resolving this impasse would involve supplying a common medium of exchange, maybe a translator. Once this is provided, moving from a state of non-understanding to understanding becomes possible. Type two impasses involve interlocutors who share the same language in some sense, yet find themselves with non-overlapping sets of hermeneutical resources to make sense of at least some conversational contributions. Participants in this inter interaction share a medium of exchange in some sense. The source of the impasse is the places where their hermeneutical resources do not overlap. Resolving this impasse might involve clarification or translation of specific lexical items. Once we get to type three impasses, linguistic remedies seem to start uh, seem less effective. For instance, in grappling with a difficult text, an impasse can arise that need not be due to ignorance of the meaning of lexical items. Conceivably, one could know or come to know the meanings of all the words used in the text and still be left with a gap in understanding. What is needed to fill this gap is not immediately clear. It could be the possession of some concept, certain beliefs, experiences. Whatever is missing, linguistic knowledge will not necessarily resolve the impasse. Type three impasses also include cases where the gap is supported by a lack of cultural familiarity. More broadly, the hermeneutic obstacle involved in non is non-linguistic ignorances. Someone unfamiliar with the intricacies of African-American life in large Southern urban centers will likely miss much of the humor in Donald Glover's show Atlanta, for instance. Even if a translation manual is provided for the African-American English used in the dialogues, Outsiders to this cultural paradigm will lack the familiarity with personalities, practices, and situations crucial for uptake. And to the extent this gap can be closed, it is evident this will not be accomplished by learning new linguistic items. Finally, type four impasses are characterized by instances in which understanding is assumed but not achieved due to the interpreters holding certain prejudices. According to philosopher Miranda Fricker, prejudices are judgments which may have a positive or negative valence and which display some typically epistemically culpable resistance to counter evidence owing to some affective investment on the part of the subject. One example of this might be a Hollywood executive who is predisposed to think white viewing audiences will be hesitant to embrace stories that center black life and black characters despite recent successes in film and television. I presented four basic types of impasses, which can give the impression that they are standalone instances. But I am thinking of them as much more integrated than that. An impasse can be multi-layered, consisting of both linguistic and extra-linguistic breakdowns. If we look again at the differences in the ways people understand the situation with police, we can begin to see the presence of a hermeneutical impasse. This obviously presents a challenge for the moment in which we find ourselves. 
Remember that thing about which we are supposed to be doing something? How this thing gets talked about and understood has pretty clear implications, not just for remedies, uh, for which remedies are suggested as a fix, but also for what sorts of things enter the realm of possibility as a reasonable suggestion. The Black Lives Matter movement has been active in its push for the redressing of racial injustice in the United States after the murder of Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of George Zimmerman, as well as in Canada and the UK. The movement has also been attempting to shift the way we talk and think about these issues. How an issue is framed is extremely important. It might be said that the one who controls the narrative controls reality. In our current public discourse, there is a bubbling of social commentary. Plenty of voices are struggling to break through and be heard, to offer diagnoses and prescriptions. In more mundane settings of relative social calm, public officials and news media pretty much control the frames within which issues are discussed. Arguably, both states and the media are pretty conservative in how they define the boundaries of reasonable discourse. The news media achieves this by being extremely selective in who they bring on air to discuss matters. Politicians achieve it by telling us all what most Americans believe and value. But what happens in moments of social unrest when scores of people hit the streets and demand justice? The quote unquote pressure from below might give the impression that the setting of the frame is somehow inverted. That is, the ordinary citizenry takes control of the diagnostic process. How we talk about the issue, how we define what the issue is, is dominated by the interests and concerns of ordinary citizens, or at least the framing is not set by state officials. In an article appearing in the journal Critical Policy Studies, Ahmed Avigur Eshel argues that policy elites who are essentially state legislators, are put in a reactive position during moments of social unrest. But this does not mean that they just roll over and give in to the demands of the people. Rather, he claims that the state adopts a particular tactic, uh, what he refers to as containment to manage the situation. According to Avigar Eshel, policy elites accommodate their discourse to engage with public pleas in a manner that reaffirms the ideational framework that currently underlies policymaking. In other words, the state attempts to engage with the public outcry for drastic change in the most conservative way possible, a way that maintains uh, the way policy has been determined all along. This is accomplished by the use of two complementary practices boundary setting and tailored framing. Boundary setting is concerned with delimiting what is possible. The speaker sets the boundaries by acknowledging the possibility of applying alternatives, but only to delegitimize them. Tailored framing is used to fill the discursive spaces opened by boundary setting. Avigar Aishel notes that policy elites use ideas that conform to the boundaries set to produce explanations and interpretations specifically tailored to public concerns. As you can probably discern, 
policy elites attempt to surreptitiously maintain control of the broader narrative, even as they appear to accede to public demand through the use of this tactic of containment. If policy elites can successfully control the boundaries for what counts as possible, that is legitimate in public discourse, this provides ammunition for excluding certain voices from the conversation about remedies. Let's think for a moment about some of the moves currently being made by some businesses and politicians. Recall that Colin Kaepernick's decision to kneel during the playing of the national anthem at football games in support of Black Lives was not popular among large swaths of the US. San Francisco police even threatened to refuse security service for games because of it. Fast forward to 2020, and we've witnessed police officers taking a knee during recent protests. Also recall that the slogan Black Lives Matter was not universally accepted. The All Lives Matter retort was not an uncommon one. Again, flash forward to the present, and we see companies plastering Black Lives Matter all over their websites, mayors having it sprayed onto the streets, and even Mitt Romney out in the streets chanting it. My, how times have changed. These kinds of symbolic gestures, coupled with the sort of very modest reforms found in the White House executive order, are the kind of moves that attempt to manage what policy elites would consider the more radical calls coming from movement organizers and activists. Consider calls to defund the police. Opposition to these calls are coming in from a variety of places. The police, of course, resist these calls, suggesting that to do so would lead neighborhoods into bedlam. Republican politicians rejected as an attack on police and an abandonment of vulnerable people to criminals. Even Democratic politicians voice opposition, in some cases fearing that such calls are politically inexpedient. Perhaps a unifying note sounded in each of these oppositions is that the call, calls to defund, and by proxy those who do the calling, are outside of the bounds of reasonableness, are illegitimate. If you stop to think about it for a moment, the framework for discussing public issues is often taken for granted. Not much attention is paid to who gets excluded from discussions of public concern. Consider for a moment who has appeared on network news shows to discuss police issues. Figures like Angela Davis, Mariam Kaba, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore are not typically booked for interviews on quote unquote mainstream news shows, despite being leading voices in the prison abolitionist movement. Further, how often do you hear the viewpoints of people who live in highly policed communities on these shows? Not very often. What this amounts to, I want to say, is a type of exclusion from the mainstream conversation which arguably has consequences for how the framing of issues of public concern is constructed. In essence, those voices are excluded from a process that plays a significant role in shaping the hermeneutical resources people come to use to understand what is at issue. This kind of exclusion has been characterized by some as a hermeneutical injustice. 
A hermeneutical injustice occurs when a gap in collective interpretive resources puts someone at an unfair disadvantage when it comes to making sense of their social experiences. Miranda Fricker notes that certain social groups often face an inequality in hermeneutical participation. There are some situations, what Fricker refers to as hermeneutical hotspots, in which it serves the interests of the socially powerful to maintain ignorance or a misinterpretation of certain social experiences. Contributions to interpretations of experiences by members of marginalized groups are excluded or evaded through misinterpretation. Fricker describes this exclusion as hermeneutical marginalization. When there is unequal hermeneutical participation with respect to some significant area or areas of social experience, members of the disadvantaged group are hermeneutically marginalized. I believe this is what is happening with respect to abolitionists. There is or appears to be deliberate misinterpretation of abolitionist positions, as well as marginalization from the discussions that produce hermeneutical resources. And not only does this limit the range of the political imagination with which the public approaches a social issue, it, is also, it also further entrenches hermeneutical impasses, often between those segments of society most disaffected by current policy frameworks and others which are not so disaffected. The example with policing is but one of many where hermeneutical impasses show up. Some impasses will be more entrenched than others. A few may even be unresolvable. The challenges raised by these impasses, as well as the proclivity of the state and other trustees of the mainstream mechanisms of public discourse to unjustly exclude certain voices from discussion, are serious. The difficulty is heightened by the fact that the tactics employed to control the narrative appear to be largely undetectable to large swaths of the American populace. What is needed in part is a greater appreciation of language's entanglement with power. Drawing from Baldwin again, he notes, it goes without saying that language is a political instrument, means, and proof of power. Seeing our way toward a more just society will undoubtedly require dismantling structures of discursive power that helps to maintain hermeneutical impasses and perpetuate hermeneutical injustices. Hope I provided um, enough to spark some thoughts in you about our present situation, but also about our continuing circumstances when we engage with social issues. Not only do we need to attend to the particular remedies for a particular social issue, but also those larger frameworks within which we discuss those issues. Thank you.